Good morning, everybody. Uh, it is so good to finally be back here at Resurrection. Alyssa and I this this community very much, and we have so appreciated all the prayers and encouragement and support that you all have given to us and for our ministry uh, in Oxford over the last several years. So thank you very much. Um, it's a joy also to get to share with you from God's Word this morning, uh, but I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. Uh, the bad news is that uh, I'm preaching not on John uh, 15, but on Genesis chapter 17. The Old Testament text will be our primary text this morning, uh, which is going to require me first to read a little bit more of the passage to us before I launch in, and it's also going to require me during the sermon to speak be quite a bit about uh, circumcision. So that's the bad news. Uh, the good news is that I have not brought PowerPoint slides. Um, so there you go. All right, let me uh, read Genesis 17, picking up where we left off in verse 9, and, uh, and then we'll dive in. Uh, and God said to Abraham, this is, uh, we've heard the first of five speeches that God gives to Abraham. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. I wasn't kidding. Uh, so shall my covenant be in your flesh on everlasting covenant. An uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has, broke, uh, he has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to him, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. The word of the Lord. All right, let's pray. O oh Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I want to begin by asking you, yes, you, a personal question. What defines you? What defines you? Is it your work? Your family? Is it your commitment to some cause or your achievements, your failures? If you've lived long enough, you will have witnessed or personally experienced how disorienting and destabilizing it can be to stake your identity on things that change. It's not necessarily that any of these things are bad or insignificant, it's just that they can turn on a dime. We lose a job or we retire 
or our marriages hit the rocks, or our kids stop calling, or the cause we've always supported runs aground or veers off the, way, the rails. And suddenly, we don't know which way is up. We discover that our identity wasn't as securely anchored as we'd thought. And sometimes, our problem is that we're afraid our identity is too stable. We worry that the mistakes that we have made will always define us, that we'll never be able to change, that we'll never live them down. Today, I want to encourage you. The gospel of Jesus Christ declares in no uncertain terms that uh, the very good news that ultimately you are not defined by your successes or your failures or your pedigree or your social status or any frangible, finite thing. The truth is that your life is not your project. Your life is God's project. And your life is defined from start to finish, from top to bottom, by God's gracious purposes for you and God's persistent, patient pursuit of your heart. So here's this morning's uh, sermon in a nutshell. Uh, the story of how God has pursued you is a story that goes back to his persistent, patient pursuit of Abraham and Sarah, and his promise to bless all the families of the earth through them, a promise that God fulfills every single time someone like you or me or any of us is baptized into new life in Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and as it happens, Abraham's great, 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 great grandson. So, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please open them to Genesis chapter 17. It'll help to follow, uh, help you follow along. Uh, now, the alert and numerate reader will have already observed that Genesis chapter 17 is immediately preceded by Genesis 16. Now, so, this is the sort of profound, in-depth analysis that you learn to do, you know, in graduate school. Genesis 16 narrates, in effect, Abram and Sarai's failure to trust the Lord, to keep his promises, to give them a son, and then their attempt to take their destinations or their destinies into their own hands by having Abram father a child with Sarai's slave girl, Hagar. This was bad. The narrator of this episode repeatedly echoes the narrative of Adam and Eve's fall in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. The not-so-subtle point of these echoes is to depict Abram and Sarai's failure to trust the Lord to keep his promises as being a calamity on a par with the fall of Adam and Eve. It is, in short, their lowest point, their worst moment, their deepest moral failing. And we're left to wonder what the consequences of all this will be. So in Genesis 17, our passage for this morning begins, Abram is 99 years old, as good as dead, as the Apostle Paul put it, an old man with a dying dream. Rather than having more progeny than the stars of the sky as God had promised, Abram has one semi-legitimate son. And rather than a family that is a blessing to all the families of the earth, he has a dysfunctional home full of predictable tensions between his aging wife and his young servant turned mistress. This, we can be sure, wasn't how Abram imagined his life turning out when he left his homeland 25 years earlier. And at this point, it's been 13 long years since Abram has heard from the Lord, this strange God with all of his big promises. Perhaps you've known long silences like that. Perhaps you've found yourself wondering, as we can guess, Abram was wondering at this point, where is God? Where has he gone? Did I just make all of this up or imagine the whole thing? Or perhaps 
Abram and Sarah, I wonder if the Lord has given up on them, decided to renege on his promises and to just call the whole thing off. Maybe they think they've blown it. Mercifully, in our passage, Genesis 17, the Lord breaks his long silence and reappears to Abraham. And in a series of five rapid-fire speeches, God reaffirms his steadfast covenantal commitment to Abram and his family, despite their flaws and their failures. In the first and the last speeches, God reiterates and doubles down on his promises to Abram, giving them a renewed hope. And in the second and fourth speeches, God gives Abram and Sarai new names, Abraham and Sarah, and thereby gives them their new true identities. And in the climactic third speech, God gives them an outward visible sign of the covenant between the Lord and Abraham's family, the rite of circumcision, a new permanent sign of his permanent commitment to them. So that's a renewed hope, a new identity, and a new sign of his commitment to them. Let's look at each of these in turn. So first, the Lord gives them a renewed hope. The first thing God says to Abram in in his first speech is this, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. This is the the first time that this name or title is used in all of scripture, but it recurs regularly afterwards in moments like this one when the Lord is reiterating his incredible promises to Abram and his heirs to make them a nation of kings and priests, to make them a blessing to all the families of the earth, and to make them a people as numerous as the stars of the heavens. The name itself is a sort of rallying cry, identifying the God who has made these incredible promises as being the God who can deliver on those promises. El Shaddai, God Almighty, can do what he says he's going to do, however impossible it may sound. And the promise the Lord makes to Abram in this passage sounds pretty impossible. Abram and Sarai, who are both pushing 100 at this point, will have a biological son, the old-fashioned way. And he, not Ishmael, will be their heir and the bearer of God's covenant. Now, on the face of it, that's crazy. And understandably, when Abram hears God make this promise, he laughs out loud. He can't be serious, Abram thinks. For the Lord to do this, he would have to be more powerful than death itself. He would have to be able to reverse the deadness of Sarah's womb. He'd have to be able to wind back both of their biological clocks. And that's precisely the point. The Lord of all creation calls into existence things that do not exist, and he will not be bound by anyone's biological clock, even if it stopped ticking entirely. The Lord hears Abraham's laughter, and he says, Your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. The name Isaac literally means he laughs. And it's not exactly clear who he is. Who laughs? Abraham? Isaac? Or maybe this is God Almighty's way of saying that he will get the last laugh by doing the seemingly impossible. And having made these unbelievable promises and identified himself as the God who can and will keep them, God Almighty offers the following unbelievably gracious invitation to Abraham. Walk before me and be blameless, so that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. This is God's gracious standing invitation to live in fellowship with him. Second, the Lord gives Abram and Sarai their new true identities. God renames Abram and Sarai, giving them the names that proclaim just who it is that he has created and called them to be. 
Abram becomes Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And Sarai becomes Sarah, which means princess. In these speeches, the Lord, in effect, says, I have told you who I am, God Almighty. Now, let me tell you who you really are. You will be fruitful. You are royalty. And through you, I will renew and bless the human race. You see, one of the most stunning features of God's speeches in this chapter is that they are also peppered with allusions to and verbal echoes of the first chapters of Genesis. But this time, the echoes and allusions are not to Genesis chapter 3, but to Genesis chapter 1, God's initial creation of humanity in his own image and his initial blessing and charging them to be fruitful and multiply and to wisely rule over his good and beautiful creation. The force of these biblical echoes is to hint that despite Abraham and Sarai's uh, flaws and failures, God is committed to giving them and to giving all of humanity through them a fresh start. And with that new start, they are given new names, a new identity, and a new calling. Finally, God uh, gives Abraham's family a permanent sign of his promise to them. Never again would God's people be left in the dark to wonder where they stood with God, even during those prolonged silences. The sign was this. Every male in Abraham's household from eight days old on up was to be circumcised. See, in the Old Covenant, the great rite of initiation into God's people was the circumcision of boys and men. And the rite of membership in God's people was the Passover meal, both of which required the shedding of blood, whether of boys and men or of uh, the Passover lamb. For Christians, however, these bloody rites have been replaced by the bloodless New Covenant sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's because... In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God both crucially fulfilled the promises that he had made in the Old Covenant and to Abraham and inaugurated a new covenant and a new era requiring a whole new set of symbols to celebrate and remember what God has done. And that's why the Apostle Paul devotes so much space in his letters to arguing that baptized non-Jewish followers of Jesus do not, I repeat, do not need to get circumcised in order to be fully paid up card-carrying members of the people of God. No more blood needs to be shed. Christ has died for us once and for all. So, between the old covenant and the new, the signs of God's promise have changed. But what about what they signify? As we come to a close, I want to quickly offer three observations about the mediums of the rites of circumcision and baptism and the message to God's people of God's grace and God's unchanging grace that is communicated through both of those rites. So, three observations. First, circumcision is a permanent reminder of God's permanent commitment to his people and his promises. A covenant is not a contract. It's more firm and more binding than that. It comes with terms and conditions, but with no escape clauses. Here, God is binding himself to Abraham's family permanently. It is an everlasting covenant designed to last throughout the generations. You'll have noticed, too, that God instructs Abraham and his descendants to circumcise infants who are only eight days old. These little ones will be members of God's covenant people well before they understand what faithfulness to that covenant means. And as it was with circumcision, so it is with baptism. Uh, This past December, 
uh, our son Charlie was baptized at St. Aldate's Church in Oxford, and he was only 18 months old at the time, and during the ceremony, he started lapping up water from the baptismal font. Um, he clearly had very little sense of what was happening, what any of it meant, or how he was supposed to behave, uh, and that's, that's pretty much par for the course for infant baptisms, as, as you've probably seen. Um, if babies have no idea what baptism means, why do we baptize them? We baptize them because God's grace has not changed. God's grace to us not only preceded our faith, it precipitated our faith. God chose us before we chose him. In fact, he chose us before we even had the capacity to choose him. So to those of us who were baptized maybe as teenagers or as adults, the practice of baptizing infants reminds us of the fact that we are defined not by the strength or the consistency or the sophistication or the maturity of our faith, but by the object of our faith, God's permanent gracious commitment to us in Jesus Christ. So, back to circumcision. Circumcision is also a physical symbol of a spiritual transformation. Remember that this mark served as a symbol of God's charge to his people to be fruitful and multiply, and his promise that he would, in fact, make them fruitful. It is, in fact, a pruning image, a pruning image. It is the pruned vine that bears much fruit, and the circumcision is a sign of the divine vine dresser's commitment to restore us to fruitfulness. But how? Circumcision is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. The books of Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel make it abundantly clear that Israel needed to have circumcised hearts to match their circumcised bodies. Hearts that would love, revere, honor, and obey God, and that would love their neighbors in turn. These texts speak of the circumcision of the heart both as a work that his people are called to do and as a work that God promises that he will do in them to bring about the fruit he desires from them, hearts after his own heart. He does this by pruning them, by teaching them, sometimes with tough love and sometimes with staggering gentleness. The grace signified in circumcision is itself, if you will, surgical, and the great physician is a skillful heart surgeon. To be included in God's covenant is to go under the knife of God's redeeming love, a love that will not rest until it has cut away all that deadens us to the love of God and the love of neighbor. And once again, as with circumcision, so with baptism. For Christians, baptism is the sign that by God's grace you have died to sin and that you've been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. In baptism, we receive from the Holy Spirit the promised circumcision of our hearts and with it, the open invitation and the power to walk before God in newness of life. And it also comes with the promise that in the ups and downs of life, God will be at work patiently pruning our hearts to make us fruitful vines for his kingdom. Finally, circumcision is a physical mark of one's true identity as a child of God. This is why in the Jewish tradition, Baby boys are officially named on the day of their circumcision, on the eighth day of their lives, and why for most of its history, the Christian church in both the East and the West followed suit, officially naming children on the day of their baptism, that is, their spiritual circumcision. 
This is why people still sometimes uh, use the word christening as a euphemism for naming. It has the roots in the, that tradition. And the point of it was this, that in baptism we receive our true God-given identity and calling. And the roots of both of these Jewish and Christian traditions of naming go back to the renaming of Abraham and Sarah in this passage. And the point of them was to underscore the fact that who you really are is who you're declared to be in circumcision if you're a Jewish man or in your baptism if you're a Christian. You're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to God's promise, participants in God's new creation, the objects of God's undying, unchanging love. So, to conclude, friends, if you are a baptized follower of Jesus this summer, whenever you take a shower or whenever you hop into the pool or into the ocean, uh, whenever you wash your hands, I encourage you to remember your baptism and to give thanks for the fact that ultimately you are not defined by anything you've done or failed to do, but by God's grace. Take comfort in the promise that he is at work in your heart, restoring you to the kind of life for which you were made. And take courage to walk before him in newness of life, confident of his unshakable covenant commitment to you. And if you're not yet a baptized follower of Jesus, God's invitation to that newness of life stands open to you too. Come on in. The water is fine. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not change and that your gracious commitment to us uh, stands as firm as it ever did. Lord, we thank you that you have called us into fellowship with you, Lord, and we pray that you would help us to walk in that newness of life by the power of your spirit. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.